It's not vertical growth. We don't shoot up straight like a rocket ship, more like a a Cessna single eight engine airplane. We take off and, you know, meander our way. So why don't we look at other things this way? In the kingdom of God, according to this slow growth model. Things can go three steps forward and two steps back, can't they? It seems the way of things. Yet too many Christians conclude that if things are trending bad, say in society, in the culture, if things are, are trending bad, then, then there's no hope until Jesus brings his kingdom all of a sudden slamming down upon the earth. They are pessimists, these people. They tell themselves, Jesus, he, he cannot make all things new from heaven. Well, then what has he done with us? Now, the prophetic texts we're going to look at this morning, what they're speaking of is they're speaking of the times of Messiah. We are in those times. And they're times filled with gradual improvement. We have to understand it that way. These times of Messiah, they began when? With the resurrection and the ascension. But they get fulfilled by the Lord while he rules from the Father's right hand. Let's look at the first passage. It's 11, Isaiah 11, 6 through, 6 through 11. Here's the picture. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." Okay, this is a picture of paradise restored. It is mankind with the animal kingdom at peace. Like when God made animals from the ground in Adam and, and God brought the animals to the, to the man for naming in Genesis chapter 2. God wants this. God wants Man to work with the animals. He wants us to domesticate them. This here is the goal, this picture that we just read of. And we've, we've trained animals to participate in life with us. 
We've also sourced them for uh, clothing and, and protection, food and plowing and, and many other benefits. What's more is that animals have assisted man's advances in science and medicine. According to the uh, AMA, virtually every advance, virtually every advance in medical science in the 20th century, from antibiotics and vaccines to antidepressant drugs and organ transplants, every advance has been achieved either directly or indirectly through the use of animals in laboratory experiments. Some might buck at that idea. We've heard that in society. Some are appalled at such an idea because they equate animals with people somehow. But here, Isaiah prophesies wild beasts will become tame again and have the fear of man removed. It will be a time when man and beast feel safe together. Lions and bears and cobras will no longer be aggressors. They will no longer hurt and destroy, but will be tame. So much so that a nursing child is safe to play around the adder's den. Also, there, there seems to be a fixed harmony between the beasts in this picture. It looks like the carnivores have become herbivores. Why did animals become afraid of people in the first place? And when did tooth and claw become the way of the animal kingdom? When God made man and beast, there seemed to be peace then. The Bible speaks uh, of God bringing animals to Adam, him naming them, right? The Bible seems to, to divide the two in Genesis 9 after the flood, although I don't think that completely explains the situation. It says in Genesis 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was after the waters receded. He's sending them out again. And he goes on, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, that seems kind of like a new proclamation. Noah and his sons, they just cared for the animals, right? Brought them into the ark, but now as they disembark, God tells Noah a fear of mankind has been put upon them. Is it a new phenomenon? Eh, not completely, I don't think. 
The animals were affected by Adam's sin. They certainly could have feared man the same way before the flood. But perhaps it has been intensified now. Or perhaps the fear of man was there, but God eased it so that Noah could attract them in and tend them, and now it has returned again. Certainly, we know that Noah is still responsible for the animals. The dominion mandate has been reproclaimed. They are part of our tasks as men and women and children. And God has gifted, though, mankind with some beasts as food. Maybe the insinuation was that that would create the fear man out to hunt and kill and eat. Isaiah 11 pictures that under Messiah's everlastingly long thousand-year rule from heaven, animals will become comfortable again, right? In the midst of men even with small children playing nearby. This is paradise restored or renewed. So under such conditions, will people no longer eat meat, you might wonder? Will humans also become herbivores? I would not say that. We have domesticated chickens and steer and pigs from which we get pork and beef and chicken, not to mention fish and so on. We like these animals and they oblige us as we rule over them. In paradise, our work does not cease. And when I say paradise, I consider this that long progressional time of constant and regular improvement in history the three steps forward, the two steps back, so whatever. But that is what I mean. As things improve and Jesus puts enemies under his feet, we get these paradisic pictures. But in paradise, our work doesn't cease. We will still respectfully train animals and keep them and be safe around them without necessarily relinquishing them as a source of food. There's no justification currently, listen, to conclude that eating meat is a sin, so how could that ever change, really, to become a sinful thing during the times of Messiah? Somewhere a new law would have to be introduced calling meat-eating a sin. That won't happen. Now, could it be that people will lose their taste for meat or find greater domestic purpose in an animal that outweighs its use as food? I can't speak to that. Pretty sure Abby would never eat one of her Domesticated chickens. 
I probably wouldn't either. But I like chicken. We'll have to wait and see on these things. This we can know, and this is going to be applied to everything you you hear today. In these times of Messiah, wherever the Spirit of Christ is active and the commands of Christ get taught, you can expect positive transformation in the world. Isaiah ends the portion of this text saying that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The prophet explains, verse 10, that the root of Jesse, okay, the root of Jesse will grow tall like a high tree and shall be as a signal or an ensign or a banner that, that, that um, an army would surround itself around and march according to how that banner was displayed. Jesus is that signal for all the Gentiles and whole nations what will rally around him. This reminds me of Jesus' words when he said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John 12, 32. Let's move on. Here's something else to ponder. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Stop there. Isaiah suggests that Messiah will bring peace between nations. Harmony, indeed, is a byproduct of countries who want the things Jesus wants. If you're a country that wants the things Jesus wants, there's a good chance you will experience peace. Verse 2 says that nations will flow to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Some of this language is quite symbolic. It's always the case in the prophets. The nations, though, are plural. We should presume there are many. And these nations, what? They will flow to the Son of Man. They go to Him. And the people will say to each other, Come, let us go, that that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. The gospel of the Son is what causes this dynamic. 
It has happened in us. It should happen in everyone. Think how Jesus Christ sent out the church, okay, from Jerusalem, where the mountain of the house of the Lord is. He sent out the church from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem was the headwaters. It was where the temple once was, though, listen, the Lord replaced that temple with his own body. It says so in Revelation 12, verse 22. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So Jesus died, rose and ascended, and then Pentecost occurred. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. The mountain of the house of the Lord is the seat from which the knowledge of God flows. And the church... It goes and makes disciples of all nations. As Dennis Peacock says, the church offers to the nations the peace treaty of the king. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Isaiah, the nations will continue to always exist. Hear this point. The nations will continue to always exist. The world will never be reduced to a single people. And maybe not a single language. John wrote in Revelation chapter 21, verses 24 through 26, that the holy city of Jerusalem Jerusalem has as its lamp the Lamb of God, and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its kings will never be shut, and, sorry, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." This is real diversity, and it should be celebrated. There's some people out there that would have everyone be monotone. Here we have different peoples and languages and cultures bringing all they have to Christ. It's not a diversity of depravity that gets celebrated but the diversity of God's rich, creative, expressive, and particular peoples. Worldly people, very intelligent worldly people, think the solution to the problem of battles and wars and unrest is to rid the world of religion and erase the borders between countries. And somehow, 
equally distribute all the world's wealth like dealing a deck of cards. But none of these things can bring peace. We will only see swords beat into plowshares when people and nations decide to to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and King. And though Jesus says we should be peacemakers, he does not permit us to offer up our own prescription for peace, which is what some very intelligent but worldly people try to do. Furthermore, it is the civil magistrate who bears the sword for the Lord, according to Romans 13. And each nation's magistrates will likely bear it to protect its borders and enforce law among people until the second coming. They will bear the sword. However, they won't have to do so much. Because people will be very good inside. The sword's youth usefulness will become minimal as history evolves. When the gospel permeates a people, they learn... No, sorry. <clears throat> when the gospel permeates a people, they lean into productivity and charity. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is for worship and rest. Productive people use resources to be creative and constructive. As God blesses their work, they want to aid and assist their neighbors. Who's got time to fight and destroy when your mind is on, is on doing the good things God has given you to do. A Christian country figures, we have friends on every side, and God is with us. So what are we going to do with the metal in our swords and spears? Why not use it to make stronger plows and and sharper pruning hooks? And so it's by divine inducement that we will have disarmament. Divine inducement. The key to peace on earth is not some league of nations not the United Nations, not NATO, not communism, not not democracy, not pluralism. And no kingships, parliaments, senates, or governorships can produce this universal peace either. It is only when every nation filled with peoples decide for themselves that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And they begin to live and act that way. 
But, just like the domestication of the animals does not happen overnight, so it is with peace. Peace is hammered out over time. Compared to your personal walk with the Lord, you transform incrementally. So it is with countries and their civil representatives. But make no mistake, we must learn how to fashion societies and governments that obey all that Christ commanded. As Bob mentioned last week, the church's great commission is to, is to disciple nations, not just people out of nations. Jesus Christ is the ruler of nations. And we have seen his gospel peace treaty introduced into many countries already in history. And his laws began to be respected in most every European country and in America and elsewhere. History provides multiple examples of, of countries attempting to make God's laws their own. But the failure of each has been with people. If citizens are not lovers of Christ, then laws will never be enough. We need both the Word of God and the Spirit of God to find success. But I, I urge you, as I have heard from more than one listener, do not look around you at the decline of society, the debauchery of our nation, and conclude by those things that there is no hope and that we might as well give up until Jesus comes back. That's not only foolish, it's unbiblical and defiant. Here are two more things to ponder, and I'll speed this up now. It's Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verses 19 through 24. Isaiah 65, verses 19 through 24. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them before they call, I will answer while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Stop there. In the times of Messiah, we will begin to suffer less hardships. As his kingdom matures, less pain, less illness, fewer funerals. 
And so weeping and distress, they will disappear, it says. And age spans, forget about it. Age spans will greatly increase again, as in times of old, when men live for centuries. Adam, 940 years. Seth, 912. Enish, 905. Kenan, 920. What does it say? The prophet says, infant mortality will not be near the problem it has been throughout history. And a person who dies at 100 will be considered both young and accursed. This tells me, first... This tells me first our obedience to Jesus Christ brings blessings. And one of those blessings is longer life. If we obey Jesus, we learn to eat less, drink less, keep busy. This leads to improved health by itself. There's no mystery there. We also learn to honor our parents. And this by itself helps according to the law of Moses and the Apostle Paul. Second, the passage tells me that there could very well be some amazing medical and scientific advances ahead. Cures for cancer, ways of treating and preventing heart disease, quick helps for older people during flu season, whatever. Of course, Jesus must crack open the vault of secrets for us to discover those things. There is a vault of prepared inventions that are secret to us, but he will open them. Unless, of course, he won't open them to certain people at certain times in history. But he certainly can. and Maybe he did one yesterday or tomorrow. Third, it encourages me that a longer life allows a person to be more effective for the kingdom. My wife is right. I have more books right now than I'll ever read before I die. That's not the point, of course. But I was a, if I was able to live to, say, 374 years old instead of 74 years old, And think of the time I've gained and the knowledge I can build upon and try to incorporate in the church, in our business, in my home, in the lives of my children and other descendants. It's how it works. You, you know a person in a company, for instance, with decades of experiences is usually the one is usually one of the people the company depends upon to take it places. They know things. They've been there. They've learned a lot. These lifers, they do things with, without hardly thinking. The work is second nature. Why? Because they've had a lot of years doing it. Whereas someone new who has no history of accumulated knowledge in an industry, that person's got to earn his way or her way. So 374 years for one person to build upon knowledge, that's incredible. That's incredible. That's why there was such great advance in the beginning of mankind. 
I mean, I could be surveying buildings with my great-grandson, showing him how to do it. Not that I'd do that. I'd, I'd have Ezra do that at that point, you know, because... Finally, I don't think, I don't believe this text supports a conclusion. And this is, this is one angle here. Uh, I don't believe that this text supports a conclusion that the prophet is, is really talking about the eternal state when there is no sin, when everything is, you know, after the final judgment, hell, people go to heaven and hell. I don't think he's talking about that age. If it were talking about that eternal state, I doubt that death and curse would make it into the symbolic language at that point. And yet death and curse are still mentioned here. Because in the eternal state, after the final judgment, after the resurrection of the dead, we don't die again. People aren't cursed again. Last one, Micah 3, I mean Micah 4, verses 3 and 4. Micah 4 says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Sounds familiar. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So here again we find peace permeating the earth. But the thing I want you to notice is verse 4 there, that they, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. For this foretells a time of it foretells a time of prosperity and contentment. It suggests, it suggests that everyone has enough. There will be no starvation. Again, this is a result of Jesus ruling and judging and teaching and discipling. It's not a result of government taxation, handouts, price controls. It's not a result of a communist manifesto or some other envy-driven argument against people having too much money. It's a result of people with changed hearts and changed laws. It's a result of laboring six days of the week and respecting one another's property. It's just another result of the times of Messiah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are uh, ruling, and uh, heaven forbid that we do not appreciate all that that means. You do make all things new, and you've begun a work in each of us, but also in the things that we touch, the things that we are part of. You're in our homes, you've affected change in our workplace, in our businesses, amongst our relations, and Lord, even in, in whole countries, you have affected change, and 
certainly rebels and those who turn from you and turn to the ways of the world, they suffer for it and their country suffers for it. And we feel like we're standing and sitting in a country right now that has acted deplorably and it needs to repent greatly. And we just ask that we would be part of the uh, solvent to bring change, to bring healing. And may we begin with all of the people around us that we know and interact with. We ask this in your name. Amen. Will the deacons please come forward for this morning's tithes and offerings? The extra offering portion will go to Brandon Food Pantry. Lord, thank you for this opportunity as well to, to give token of what you've provided us with. Amen. I'd ask you to take the Psalter hymnal out again and turn to 183. 183, we'll stand and sing the first four verses, and then we will turn to the Lord's Supper, Form 4, and we'll be seated at that time.
may be seated. The elders, please come forward. Lord's Supper, Form 4. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Gospels tell us that on the first day of the week, the day in which he rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus came near to some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Come then to the joyful feast of the Lord. People of God, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We thank you, O Father, for making us in your image and calling us to be your people. We thank you for sending your Son to deliver us from the way of sin and death by his obedient life, by his suffering and death upon the cross, and by his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, with the whole company of saints in heaven and on earth, we worship and glorify you, God most holy, and we sing with joy. We give thanks to God for this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to his disciples, saying, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Send your spirit upon us, O Lord. Grant that all who share the body and blood of Jesus may be one in him and may remain faithful in love and hope. 